what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spector. There is the story of a boy genius. Willie Catherine, Thomas Kidd, Jean-Baptiste Poclamelier. And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him, do you understand? There's no one else. No one else. The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you helped me out. And there is the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. This is not an easy job. I have to take everything and play as it lays. Sometimes people need a little help. Sometimes people need to be forgiven. And that is a very tricky thing on my part, making that call. But you can forgive someone, well, that's the tough part. What can we forgive? Is that unclear? Kind of. Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And as promised, we are doing our second Paul Thomas Anderson movie in a row. In this case, it's 1999's Magnolia. And from last week, Ryan Daly's back. Hi, Ryan. Woo, what's up? <laughs> this is very exciting talking about this movie. And uh, our special guest is Siskoid. Hi, Siskoid. Hi, Rob. Very happy to have you here. Now, you told me this is your favorite movie of all time. Is that right? It is, uh, somehow. It, it's, it's always been at the top of my list. Well, not always, but since I've seen it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just managed to stay up there, you know? Um, I often say Blade Runner is, is in my top two because Blade Runner is number two. It, you know, it, it's second to Magnolia. I was about to ask well, you, like, with this, this movie, yeah. when you first saw it, it, it instantly rocketed to the top and it stayed there, or has it grown over time? No, I think it, well, I, I, I don't know that I kept you know, a top five or ten. It's it's a very difficult question to, to actually answer. Uh, what's welcome. your favorite movie? Yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess it's always been you know a five star review for me, and uh, it just managed to stay there. And when people ask me, that's my go to answer. And when I watch it, it just confirms it. It's uh, there's no <laughs> there's it's, it never drops 
you know, uh, for me down the list. It's it, yeah. and and I'm not even sure why it's the best movie I've ever seen or the one that speaks most to me. I every time I watch it, I I sort of touch on possible answers, and they're not always the same ones. And so I watched it last night with a couple of the girls from Mohatmu, and um, I, I picked up on stuff that I hadn't before. It's not a movie you watch all that often because of the length, but it's uh, it, it's one that I you know I, I I don't feel is long when I watch it, and uh, it's it, it's one that whenever I revisit it, I, I you know find out new stuff. I pick up on on new elements. Different things charm me, and the same big emotional beats get me. So, uh, yeah, it's it's my number one. Mm, okay. Now, yeah, you mentioned the length. This movie is, in fact, three hours and eight minutes. Uh, <laughs> it's a very long movie. Paul Thomas Anderson later on in interviews said himself that this movie is a punishing length. That was the quote he used. Uh, and we do need to give a little bit of context to where Paul M- Paul T A PTA. Let's just say PTA. Uh, was at this point. He had come off of Boogie Nights, which had been a massive success critically. I think financially it was even a, you know, a reasonable hit. It, it was no Star Wars or anything, but it, but it was a big hit for the art houses that it played in and whatever. And it was, it just, it really put him on the map. And so New Line Cinema basically gave him carte blanche. They just said, we want to make your next movie, whatever movie you want to make. And he recognized in that moment he was never going to have a better chance to make the movie he wanted to make because he there would be nobody stopping him. So he went on to make this three-plus-three-hour uh, drama of interconnected stories. And, I mean, boy, the cast he assembled uh, for this movie, a lot of them, a lot of them are uh, veterans from Boogie Nights. You've got Ricky Jay, Philip Seymour Hoffman, John C. Riley, Melora Walters, Phil Baker Hall, Louis Guzman, Julianne Moore, William H. Macy, Alfred Molina. And then in this movie, you've got Jason Robards, of course, and a little guy known as Tom Cruise <laughs> in this movie, <laughs> playing probably the most unlikable character Tom Cruise has ever played in some ways. And we can get into... Oh, there was some controversy about his part, about his role in this, yeah. Absolutely. We can get into that about how he found his way uh, into this movie. In fact, you know, it's worth mentioning that Tom Cruise did this movie back-to-back with Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick. So, I mean, this was Tom Cruise at his most sort of expansive. Uh, And it said it's just a series of interconnected uh, stories. Um, Before we even get to all that, like, let's talk about the opening, the the, the beginning of this movie where uh, the narrator, Ricky Jay, uh, talks about these things that are coincidences, or are they? And he, we get into three separate stories. One, there's a set in the Victorian times about a guy named uh, who guy a guy who lives at a, a place called Greenberry Hill, and he's later mugged and murdered by three men named Greenberry and Hill. And then the other story is there is a, a, a blackjack dealer played by Patton Oswalt, who <laughs> is a, a a scuba diver who ends up getting crossing a player who gets mad at him because he doesn't get the cards he wants, and he ends up getting scooped up by a firefighting plane when they scoop the lake to put out a fire, and they dump the scuba diver, and we see Pat Oswald and his scuba deer hanging from a tree because he was accidentally picked up by the, by the plane. And then the third story, which is something they teach apparently in law classes, about a guy who jumps off a roof to kill himself, and just at the moment that he is passing a certain window, he is shot by a random shotgun blast. And we find out later that the shotgun blast comes from his own parents who were fighting each other, and he was depressed about his parents doing that very thing. And the argument is, well, is that murder? Because he was going to die anyway. 
But is it murder because he was killed by the shotgun blast? And then, of course, we learned that he wouldn't have died because there was an awning there around the building, so he wouldn't have died from the from the uh, the fall anyway. And it's and also he's he's the one who loaded the shotgun because he wanted his parents to die. Right, exactly. They always right. Yeah, so, yeah. Why so like he's yeah. like complicit in the attempted murder of his parents, <laughs> like like trying to trying to get them to kill each other. And I, when the police are interviewing the father, he's like, he, she always waves the gun at me, but I never load it. They're like, and you didn't load the gun. He's like, why would I load why the would gun? I load the, why would I load the shotgun? <laughs> yeah. So and it's just like the whole theme of this movie of of random like randomness fate mm-hmm. is there such a thing as fate or is it all an intricate plan because of course all the characters in these movies which they in, in this movie are all interconnected in their own way jason robards plays uh, a an elderly man who is dying of cancer he's he's in hospice care his nurse is played by philip seymour hoffman his sort of uh Sugar can uh, what's the sugar mama wife is played by Julianne Moore. We find out that his son is uh, played by Tom Cruise, who is a men's rights kind of motivational speaker named T.J. Frank T.J. Mackey. Uh, and there's a, a police officer played by John C. Riley who meets a a sort of I don't know, she's not a, I don't think she's in a like an official prostitute, but she's a, a drug-addled young woman played by Laura Walters. Her father is the host of a game show uh, played by, uh, his name is Jimmy Gator, played by Phil Baker Hall. Uh, he is married to Dee Wallace. We have that character going on. And then one of the contestants on the game show is a young boy who is this sort of preternatural genius but is uh, ridden hard by his father who wants to make money off of him. So it's all these things. And we just keep cutting back and forth throughout the three-hour runtime. Well, I also need to mention William H. Macy plays a, uh, a sort of washed-up uh, former child star. He was a quiz kid winner. Quiz kid Donnie Smith, as they call mm-hmm. him. Um, and we, he has a whole other story going on about where he has to, he's going to rob his uh, employer, played by Alfred Molina, another returning vet from Boogie Nights, uh, because he needs oral surgery, as he talks about. He needs, <laughs> he needs oral surgery. And we find out why he needs the oral surgery. So this is a giant sprawling mess of a movie. It's hard to kind of know where to start. I've been talking for 10 minutes straight. Like, where, where do we want to begin, guys? Like, Cisco, where would, where's your, like, in on this movie? Well, I, I, I want to say something about that prologue and its function, because it, it does seem you've already got a very long movie, and then you're going to have Ricky Jay, uh, you know, <laughs> narrating these little vignettes that have nothing to do with the story, except thematically. So on the one, on the one uh, you know, side of the of a three-sided coin. <laughs> the, uh, the, the first part of it is what you said. There's the theme of uh, either randomness or coincidence or the, there's a, a bit of a meta commentary going on in the film all throughout where uh, if you'd seen that in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. And yet it happened. If, if it did, you know, obviously those vignettes could be completely fictional. Uh, probably are. But, uh, or urban legends at the very least. But is I, I had heard I had heard the story of the uh, the scuba diver the Patton Oswalt thing okay. falling into a tree. Now that's not saying that it was a true story, but I had heard that as an urban legend before I saw the movie. Yeah. So uh, a story of that type at least existed before P.T. Anderson wrote the script. And that one also sort of sets up cleverly without actually you know pointing at it the. Um, the, the, the plague of Egypt towards the end, we'll get to that, but the, the reign of frogs, uh, because how do, you know, there, there are reports of uh, raining fish and, you know, that kind of thing. And here is a, a possibility where, you know, a, a man scooped out of a lake later 
rains down on a on a flaming forest. Uh, but the same kind of idea can can happen where you know the water is scooped up by a hurricane or whatever, and then something it, it later falls you know back down to earth. There there's that idea to make you sort of believe that very strange climax, but uh, at the same time it it sort of allows the movie not only to to commit some of these uh, coincidences because we're following people who have interwoven lives uh, and on that one day interweave more closely, both thematically and plot wise. But um, uh, that's, you know, that's a random occurrence or it's, it may be strange. And yes, if you'd seen in a movie, you wouldn't have believed it. Uh, But it did happen. You know, that the idea that these things happen. So in this film, we will do things that you will go, that's unbelievable. And yet there are, you know, stranger things that have happened in real life. So it gives you the, even allows for the, uh, the reign of frogs. And at the same time, the third side of the coin, uh, <laughs> if you will, is, is to set up what Rob said, the idea of fate as a force. And certainly in film and fiction, fate and let, let, let's, let's call it God exists, guides the film, guides the story because through the author. So, um, uh, you know, does that exist? And then somehow it, you know, and the, and then you, it, it just opens the door to all those biblical illusions that are in the film, whether that's the plague of Egypt at the end, whether that's just, just ideas that, uh, sort of materialize through the editing, because I think the, the, the little kid called Dixon, the little rapper who, uh, that, that was like a, a storyline that was cut out of the film for the most part, the thing with the worm, right, right. the crime, the crime case, um, they filmed some scenes that are not in the film. The film would have been maybe 10 minutes longer. And, um, uh, and I don't know what that would have looked like that storyline, but now the kid is sort of almost a supernatural presence in the life of John C. Riley's policeman because or like a Greek chorus or, or, you know, or not well, necessarily the chorus, but like the sort of, um, the enigma who, who, well, there, there's spins like a riddle that isn't understood. Yeah, this is something that the girls picked up on, and I'd never had because I, you know, I knew too much about the story of the making of the film. So I knew this was a sort of aborted storyline or a tenth story within the larger story, um, and so I understood it as sort of incomplete or, or half seen, uh, and I didn't really question it. But in by cutting down that that element you sort of, the girls kind of made that point that um, uh, the line uh, that's dangerous to confuse children with angels, which I'd always, okay, well, Donnie Smith used to be a kid, and then there's the kid on TV, Stanley, uh, who is also, you know, uh, angelic, perhaps, or um, that kind of idea. But then uh, there's the, that kid, Dixon. And if if we do confuse children with angels, and if the film does confuse the two, and that there are biblical allusions throughout the film, then that line sort of resonates with the Dixon character because this little kid appears out of nowhere, has answers that the cop cannot understand because he speaks in parables, uh, which is the rap. And then when he loses his gun, when Jim Kering loses his gun, we see the kid running out, grabbing it and running away with it. And then later when it rains, fogs, the gun falls out of the sky. <laughs> uh, so suddenly there's like, okay, is there actually, you know, there's, 
<laughs> there's a resonance between that kid's new function in the film. Once you you've cut out his dad and all of that, uh, he has a new function, and that function is almost supernatural. And he's you also know? he's of course he's also the one that saves Julianne Moore's life when she overdoses in the car. Right. He finds right. her, and that's what get, they bring her to the, the ambulance. Shows up and rescues her, and it's, while she's in the ambulance is when the frogs fall. So I mean, it's like she would have died had he not found her. So you know, I think there's a point to that. There's there's something out in there, and if the prologue and then the epilogue questions uh, the, the, the 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 reality of fate of a guiding hand of a master designer, which in a film is a it's a true thing. Uh, you know, whether we believe in that or not in the real world, in the film, there is a God and his name is Paul T. Anderson. So yeah. Well yeah. So um you know Dixon becomes that character and that line about children and angels suddenly resonates more. And that, that's what I mean about finding new things in the film all the time because some of the, the way it's written, uh, very often characters in one branch will say something that seems to to matter to another part of the story. You know, it's, it's like the lines are not in the right uh, storyline, but talk to the other storyline. Anyway, wow. so that's where I would start the prologue. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is... Uh, no this, wonder this movie is three hours. Yeah, three hours. seriously. I mean, it's it's clearly Paul Thomas Anderson is sort of playing in that that, uh, that playground that uh, Robert Altman... Not, not that Altman was the only guy ever to do it, but, I mean, this is kind of the Altman style of just sort of finding a whole bunch of characters and then just pointing the camera at them. And, and yeah. I mean, this, this movie's a lot more plot-heavy than, say, MASH is, but it has that same kind of feel, and I have to think that uh, PTA was channeling Altman because we've got two Robert Altman regulars in this movie. Uh, Henry Gibson is in all the scenes with William H. Macy at the bar where we where we find out why William H. Macy needs the uh, oral surgery. And um, also Michael Murphy, uh, who plays uh, mm-hmm. the lawyer, uh, Jason Robards is a lawyer. They are both Altman regular. So when they show up, I always feel like that they're almost sort of like a PT's, PTA's good luck charm from the Altman movies to have them in these little tiny, tiny roles. But I mean, uh, when we first meet... Uh, and we have to talk about uh, Tom Cruise. I do want to get into how he ended up in this movie because apparently he saw Boogie Nights and was so impressed by it that he called PTA from the set of Eyes Wide Shut because that movie ran like two years or something and said, you know, I really admire what you do and I love, you know, maybe we could work together. And apparently uh, Anderson hot-footed it over to England to meet Cruise and offered him this part of Frank T.J. Mackey, who is this guy who is a... I mean, I'm calling him a motivational speaker. That's probably a little generous. He really is just, I don't know. Like, Ryan, what would you call, I mean, he's, he's a, he's a, he's he's toxic masculinity personified. There you go. It is like his, yeah, he is selling a, a book and video series about how and destroy. Yeah. Seduce and destroy. And the cover art is a anthropomorphic, like wolf dog creature going after a tiny little pussy cat. It's it's the uh, this yeah it's all about how men can seduce any woman into having all kinds of crazy sex without attachment without feeling guilt without establishing real true friendships and everything like that it's just you look at it and it's like oh it's just so skeevy like yeah like I, I remember like my reaction to like seeing him the first time and then watching him again this time like my skin was crawling and I was just like oh man um, and I, I do remember like they like. When, because they're all like these 
uh, like before we even see him like starting his story arc, we see like infomercials of his of his products, Seduce and Destroy, on television. I remember those in commercials like making their way onto like news networks and, and like anchors were like why is tom cruise like you know doing these like weird infomercials find out in his next movie and like it was just causing this whole thing because he was you know like he was still like a pretty boy and I, I i for me tom cruise's best roles are when he's going against that type like in interview with a vampire collateral and this i think these are his best movies when he plays these pretty despicable or outright villainous characters I, um, I love when we found out that uh, PTA actually bought ad time at late night yeah. television, and you could call the number one eight hundred Tame Her, yes. and you would get a recording from Tom Cruise selling you and his I, products. I think that's like I think that confused some of these like daytime talk show and like news like local news channels. They didn't know that it was for this movie, so they're like, "What is that? They're doing this whole story about it." Um, but yeah, and so uh, I have to. When I saw this movie, I saw it in the theater. Um, it was my dating myself. It was my senior year of high school. I saw it with two of my friends and one of my friends was kind of going on a date, meeting another girl from a different school. Um, and they were kind of meeting to like watch this movie, like kind of sitting next to me. And when Tom Cruise, his entrance onto the, into the film, when we first really meet him, it's the beginning. He's giving the seminar and it's this operatic music. What is, what is the music from? It's is the, it from? Uh, also Sprock Zarathustra from. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> totally from 2001 because the crowd sounds like a bunch of apes when they're screaming yeah, at yeah, him. It's completely of out of 2001. And uh, forgive me if you have to bleep this out, though, and forgive me if you're listening for the language, but I'm going to quote him directly. It's the mantra of his whole thing. Oh, yeah. But he starts off shouting out, respect the cock and tame the cunt. Oof. And it's like, fool, and he, and he repeats it a lot. And it's like, but I just remember seeing this in the theater when he, that when that line came up and that was his entrance. I turned to my buddy Drew, who was on this date with this girl, and I just both like I smiled at both of them and gave them finger guns. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and I was like, yeah, you are not hooking up with her tonight. I was like, oh, this man. is my, this is gonna be your only date. Um, but. It is such a so yeah. You see his character and you hear. I, I probably think maybe that's the way to kind of tackle this is just going through all the characters and their their arcs. Um, and his is certainly we see like and he he's going through this whole like seminar about how to seduce women, how to take control, and like it, it oh it's just it's creepy. You don't even want to think about it. And then after that, he goes to do an interview, um, and. As he's going through this interview, the woman keeps on kind of like coming back to like bits of bits about his story and his biography, and you can tell he doesn't want to answer some of these questions. And he's doing a fairly deft job of getting around them, uh, and kind of. But she keeps kind of needling back, and you find out that he's been lying about his past and what is. And it happens almost simultaneously with what we're finding out in uh, is that you know his. His his background is that he is the you know a strange son of um, of Jason Robards' character who is on his deathbed and kind of like babbles in like a, in a delirium. He tells his nurse uh, Phil Parma, played by Phillips Morhoven, that you know he's got a son Jack who is now Frank T J Mackey, and he wants to see him. He wants to see him before he dies. So it becomes Phil's like mission now in the movie is to reunite these people, and that's my, actually my favorite story. I, like. It's hardly there are so many unlikable characters in this movie. I think John C. Riley is one of the more noble ones, but he's also fairly pathetic at times. Mm. Um, 
Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think, is the most lovable one, and which was a surprise to me because I think when I saw this movie, I had only seen him in um, oh, Scent of a Woman, where he plays kind of a, a douchey prep student, and then Boogie Nights, Boogie Nights. where we, right. we talked about him last time, where he's just this really awkward and uncomfortable, has this crush on Mark Wahlberg and hangs around with them even though they don't really like him or respect him. So it's he always kind of gave me the creeps as a character actor and then when i saw this i was like oh my god this poor character um and and going back to cisco like when when he's saying like you know if you'd seen this in a movie you wouldn't believe it he hangs a lampshade on it when he calls yeah and again it's showing that this was pre-google he has to order playboy magazines and hustler and all of these things to the house in order to find the ads to find the like the phone number of how to reach out and call seduce and destroy and while he's talking to this guy he's just like just the, the the guy like the the telephone operator just trying to to sell him the stuff he's trying to unload the stories like this is the part of the movie where you help me reunite this long lost mm-hmm, son mm-hmm. father like i think those those scenes happen in movies because they're true so can you help me it's like oh my gosh i love that moment oh that so. the, the scene where philip seymour hoffman orders all the stuff from the like the, the <laughs> home delivery service and he's yeah. like a jar of peanut butter and water and cigarettes and uh, play- do you have Playboy? Yes, we have that. Okay, one of those. Uh, penthouse? Do you have Penthouse? Yeah, we have that. Okay, one of those. Do you do you, do you have Hustler? It's just, yes, we have. The- okay, one of those. And then he goes, okay, that'll be it. And then she's like, do you still want the peanut butter, water, and cigarettes? And I love that. I was like, this is just a blind order porn. And he's like, wait, what are you talking about? Yeah, I want all that stuff. And you, you mentioned how much how nice he is in this movie. This is one of the like nicest roles he ever played. And mm-hmm. in that scene where he starts ordering the porno, they don't tell you that that's why he's doing it, is to get the mm-hmm. phone number. And I started to think, oh, no, are we going to learn something dark about Phil Parma? And then we don't. No, it's actually he's doing it for the right reason. But in that moment, I was like, oh, no, we're going to be we're going to learn something horrible about about this character. PTA can't resist. You know? But I was like, oh, no, no, no. Phil Parma's actually just a really nice guy. So good. <laughs> I thought you. Where were you going? Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, the um, yeah the, the the where 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 do I begin? You. <laughs> uh, we were talking about T.J. Mackey, and then uh, uh, but all the stories are so you know. Yeah, that's the thing. You have to launch connected. from one to the other. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I felt the T.J. Mackey uh, seminars were basically I, I don't know prophetic. Because I, when I first saw the film, I didn't see it in theaters. I uh, I was sort of uh, I just gotten a DVD player that was buying uh, DVDs blind based on reputation, and uh, I had a lot of friends who loved Boogie Nights, which I hadn't seen yet. So I ordered uh, Boogie Nights, and then I ordered Magnolia at the same time, probably because I probably like you know got like three PTA films all in one go and watched them in order, kind of thing. By the time. I discovered him as a director, uh, and um, uh, yeah, of course, it makes you squirm, and you're not supposed to agree with uh, his methods. Uh, but you know, at the time, it felt like a parody. It felt oh. too extreme to be real. But today, you know, that's that's mainstream. Sadly, you know, it feels like uh, you know our Twitter feeds are full of these jerks, and um, so. It, you know, so there's that there's that where it's kind of a the science fiction of it or sort of became true or at least more exposed. Um, so that that's an odd element. But at the same time, I you know, at, is there a point where you 
feel sympathy for the TJ Mackey character because the more we get into it, the more we find out about his 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 background. And yes, he's a class A uh, jerk, but um, but also even though he's he goes on and on about there's a lot of dramatic irony in the film where he goes on and on about uh, you know am, am I the result of a bad father, you know, a dying mother, all of that, that's, you know, that's bullshit. Uh, I won't apologize for who I am, and I, I go forward, and I don't look back. And yet, we know that this haunts him. By the, by the end, uh, he's, you know, he's destroyed by the death of Earl, his estranged father, you know? Um, because it reminds him of his mother's death, because he's, he, you know, he hates someone so much that if that person is gone, there's there's a vacuum. The film never really gives you easy answers about any of it, anything with any character. It's, you know, there's like very strong character portraits, but you have to sort of figure out what makes them tick, what's real, what's not, what's true, uh, you know, what's uh, what's a put on, what's, a, you know, a f- and, and T.J. Mackey's a very fake person. He built himself up, but, you know, who who is he inside? And by the end... I think he becomes a more sympathetic character, regardless of how he makes his money, uh, he, be, because you have to feel, you know, some empathy for that. Yeah, he and he does have one of the more memorable like breakdowns, like on, on film that I've seen. It's like one of one of my, I think, most watchable like crying scenes. And a lot of characters get to cry and, and ball their eyes out in this movie. Um, but I just remember like seeing Tom Cruise when he does finally go to see his father on his deathbed and he's just calling him names and he's just like, he hates him so much for walking out on them and leaving this kid when he was 14 years old to deal with his dying mom. And you see that point where he starts to break up and and, like, he starts to cry and he like clasps his hands together. And it's just this physical, like trying to bottle himself up. Like, no, no, I am not going to cry. I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. And he's like, his whole body just starts shaking. Like there's just so much emotion in here and it's like welling up in him. And it's just like overflowing that when he starts to cry, it's like a full body seizure. And it's like, wow. Like I, I just like, I've never seen, a moment of like crying or sadness on film at that, like prior to seeing this movie, I had never seen something like that. So I was just like, that was, that was a good cry. That was like, in terms of just like cinematically, that was, that was well done and well earned. No, no joke. I think that is Tom Cruise's best moment on film, Mm -hmm. that that scene. And, and well, he got an Academy Award nomination for this. That's right. He did. Uh, You mentioned Siskoi that like how much PTA leaves, it's up to the audience to fill things in because, as you said, as you learn more about Frank T.J. Mack and you're like, OK, his father, played by Jason Robards, cheated on his mother repeatedly because he that's a, there's a lot of the monologues Jason Robards has where he talks about regret and the things that he's done. And as he's dying, he realizes all the terrible things he's done. And he left the family and he left Tom Cruise. He, lo- he left Frank T.J. Mackey to care for his cancer ridden mother. And yet, as an adult. It's Frank T.J. Mackey seems to hate women. And you would think, well, that seems to be the opposite of the reaction you would have. You would think that if your father left you at a young age, you would grow up hating men, not women. But yet he seems to hate women. And you have to kind of, I think you have to make that connection yourself as to how Frank T.J. Mackey got to that point of how he became this woman hating guy. And I have to say, and you mentioned about, you know, Twitter and stuff. 
there is that moment where he's being interviewed by the woman who is always sort of always sort of toying with him. It's kind of interesting. He seems like he's in control, but you realize she's in control from the beginning. Like she's really got his number down, and she's slowly drawing out the information from him. But she she talks about his mother, and he says, uh, you know, you have a good relationship with your mother. And she says, and he's like, yeah, you know, I talk to her all the time. And she says, well, what does she think about all this? And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, uh, you know, your mother is a woman, and here you are saying these things about women. And he says, oh, he says, uh, you go get him, honey. And I remember at the time when I saw this movie, and for many years, I was like, would any woman really say that? You know, would any woman ever, even, I know it's her son, but is that a viable line? And then, frankly, when I see all the women on Twitter that are like, MAGA! I, you know, I'm like, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, there would be women. I mean, I know that Frank is probably making up that line anyway, but it seemed believable to me in this context now. Where I'm like, yeah, there are women out there that are like seemingly, yeah, okay, I buy it. And I mean, you know, frankly, if there was a Venn diagram of like TJ Mackey's audience and people with MAGA hats, I think it would just be a circle. <laughs> but it has to be fake because uh, he, she died when he was 14 she died. Long, right, before, right, right. long before seduce and destroy um yeah so uh, to get back to that cast of characters um phil parma was the other <laughs> the, the other one we uh, you know ryan talked about length uh very much a, a, um, you know an exception in the film because like you said most of these characters are either unlikable or do things that have done things in their past that makes them unlikable, uh, or they're foolish. They're very, they're fools. That's the, you know, the John C. Riley character is very much a fool. And, um, it's perhaps, and it's the same with, uh, Donnie, um, you know, the, you know, whiz kid Donnie. Um, and perhaps that's where Stanley's going to, uh, you know, as a character, as, as a fool, or he's made, he's being made a fool of. And I think, Phil Parma is the one character that's not uh, someone like that, someone that's difficult to like at all. You know, um, he's at, he's a bit at the emotional heart of the film, without being one of the major participants. You know, I right. think the the real yeah. heart, the heart of the film for me is Officer Jim, but um, because he has these monologues that we're privy to and i mean we'll get we'll get to him in due course but uh but phil without being one of the main characters maybe being more of a support player is you know is at the emotional heart of that that you know earl's death and earl's death is is echoed in uh jimmy gator's uh, upcoming illness and you know it, it sort of radiates from there and he's such a positive uh caring character compared to what everyone else, maybe because we don't know about his past. <laughs> um, I think I think part of it stems from Phil not quite being passive, but his role in the movie is mostly a spectator. I mean, he he's caring for for um, Earl in his dying moment, but he's there essentially to watch the man die. Um, and even like we we get a moment where Phil like you know Phil's been there for twelve fourteen hours however long his day has been and the next hospice nurse shows up that night and Phil basically just says no go home I'm gonna wait it out because um, he knows that this is ending tonight he, he's not gonna live through um, so he's kind of there to witness this and then and then the the other thing that he witnesses is this final moment between between Frank slash Jack and and Earl and his only real thing is his only real action is 
reuniting them, which he doesn't even go all the way because like in the, that moment, like where he's trying to get them to talk on the phone, it's kind of interrupted by both, by both sides. Like uh, Frank hangs up on them before, before they get, and also Julianne Moore comes back. And when she finds out that, that, um, that that's what Phil's trying to do. That she's trying to reunite. That he's trying to reunite them. She grabs the phone and makes him hang up. Um, so it's really only the the idea that there is that connection, the knowledge that Earl's about to die, is what finally gets Tom Cruise to come over and and, and have that moment. Um, but really, it's Phil's just kind of the spectator, and maybe that's what allows him to be kind of the one saintly or the, or the one unblemished character. And well, Phil does have also, you know, it's much more, it's much quieter than T.J. Mm-hmm. Mackey's emotional moment, but he does have, you know, very strong emotional moments. This is part of the grind for him, uh, mm-hmm. but he's the one that that you know commits to the point of no return. He's the one that has to give Earl that liquid morphine, and from there, you know, it's just downhill, uh, and and it hurts him. Yeah, no, it's a the, 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 towards the end of the film, it's, it becomes very, very, very emotional, and I think it must have been, uh, I don't know, I, I, it doesn't seem so in like the making of material, but Jason Robards, it just uh, that must have been a harrowing part in you know in some way because he'd just been ill, uh, he'd lost like sixty pounds just prior to the film from his own illness, and he was, he was you know on a precarious uh, between life and death uh, kind of moment for him. And then he got the script when he got out, and uh, just he and his wife decided, well, I've got to, you've got to take this. I've, I've got to take this part because I know it. But then having to do it, and you know, basically playing that that fork in the road where he he would have died from his illness rather than than survived. Uh, that was you know a very difficult part, and I think he has to underplay everything. He's got to be. You know, he's got to be half dead. He's got to be, uh, you know, lifeless and uh, without energy and and babbling like a bit like I am. Oh yeah, at the same time, he's got pages of dialogue. In, like he's got like these two like extended monologues. One of them is actually just used for a kind of transitional sequence, like between, you know, where we just see a lot of like time passing that day. Uh, for certain characters to kind of get to their points while he's just talking about the regrets in life and everything like that. You know, yeah. like, I wonder, like, I've never seen the script for this, but I was like, that's probably like three or four pages. Well, so the rest of the time, of, yeah. Well, the rest of the yeah. time, he's uh, basically uh, just, he's has one line, he's sleeping, he's sleeping while other people are acting. Uh, and But but the his death scene has always struck me as something special because, uh, sure, you've got, you know, T.J. Mackey's there and all that, but it's during the frog the reign of frogs, and while the, the frogs are raining down, and uh, he's dying, and he's having his last gasps, and he really makes it like he's breathing like a frog does. Mm-hmm. He's he's really croaking, if you will, uh, if you want to, <laughs> you'll pardon that pun. But you know, it's just the, <gasps> the the last gasps are very very frog-like, which I think is like an amazing uh, image in the context of everything else that's happening. And there's also it's point it's punctuated by the look of recognition just before he dies that he and he and his son look at each other and know each other in that moment. That's my favorite um, moment in the movie is that yeah. that scene where they have this recognition with each other just before he dies. It's just absolutely mad. And this was Jason Robards' final movie, uh, so I mean, mm. good way to good way to go out. I do want to mention I found a little piece of. Trivia is that he offered the part, PTA offered the part of Earl Partridge to George C. Scott, 
And oh. um, George C. Scott apparently read the script, threw it across the room, and said, this is the worst fucking thing I have ever read. So, Oh, <laughs> oh nice. I, I always come down between this and um, uh, all the King's Men, no, all the President's Men for uh, Jason Robert. Yeah, performances yeah, between this one and him paying Ben Bradley. Uh, yeah, he's absolutely yeah, amazing. But, um, and this is this is certainly the meteor performance of the two. And um, we, we, Julianne Moore does have her own, as Ezra Partridge's wife. Of course, when we initially see her, we assume that she is sort of just you know because he's rich. We find out that that um, Earl Partridge is, is a TV producer and he produces the game show. That yeah, that's the that, one connection between that, the two sort run of patriarchal characters. Right, it's been running by for, running for forty years on television, hosted by Jimmy Gator, played by Phil Baker Hall. And we see there's a uh, we see a title card come up. It says like Partridge Productions. A big Earl Partridge Productions. Yeah, yeah, right. And we assume, of course, Julianne Moore, who is in her 30s and very attractive and she's married to this old man you're like oh okay we get it but then we find out in another whole scene that julianne moore when she initially did marry Earl partridge it was for his money and but now now that he's dying and she's going to inherit everything she doesn't want to inherit anything because she genuinely has fallen in love with earl we find that scene with the lawyer played by michael murphy where she's like i don't want the money because she feels guilty that that was the reason she entered into the relationship but now she genuinely loves earl and she can't bear the thought of taking the money And i love that whole storyline is that we have i don't think i've ever seen that in a movie before of somebody who's like they realize that the reason they did the thing is for the wrong reasons, but now they're doing it for the right reasons. And the guilt that she feels, because she talks about that she's cheated on him, she's very explicit about some of the details she gets into about what she's done with other men. And that, and there's a great scene of her in a, in a pharmacy where she's picking up mm-hmm. drugs. She picks up the morphine that you mentioned. And, you know, the, her own the, Xanax and a bunch Z, of other stuff. Yeah, and, and the, 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 the one pharmacist is like, boy, you could really put somebody's lights out. What are you doing with all this stuff? And, you know... I don't know if either one of you have ever been around someone that was uh, in hospice care in their, their last moments. I have, and that is all really accurate. I mean, from the nurse part of it, the picking up the drugs part of it, to the way that, like, Earl Partridge's bed is in the center of the house. Like, it, the whole house is dominated by the fact that Earl is dying. All of it is, is really spot on, and all credit to PTA for getting that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I I think I fell in love with Julianne Moore when I saw this, which is such a, a weird performance to do that. But I just I thought she looked beautiful and haunted, um, and just like the moments when she freaks out first in the pharmacy when, like she like how she thinks they're judging her and everything like that. And she first loses, it, and then when she she goes after the lawyer and she's breaking down. I just I I felt so sad for her, and at the same time, like. When she when she kind of explodes at Phil too, when he's trying to reunite father and son, she's like, "No, he doesn't want to be in his life. It's just him and me." Yep. It's she's like, "He doesn't want to see Jack. He doesn't want him in his life." It's like you don't know, you didn't see, you didn't hear the last conversation, and it's like, like that that pain, that guilt, this this victim that she feels now is kind of all she has. It's all she knows. So she's kind of clinging to that and, and throwing everything else aside, and it's like. That moment, I was kind of thinking, I was like, oh, she, there's no way she's going to end this movie without killing herself, or trying, at least. Right, oh, that, 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 yeah, scene yeah. Of, that, that scene of them in the ambulance, but this is something else, and to step back a little, like, 
Paul Thomas Anderson, man, does he know how to direct action? I mean, that ambulance yeah. scene where it turns over is fantastic. And he, I would love to, I forgot how funny this movie is. This movie made me laugh out loud when I watched it again many times. I had my headphones on. I was watching it on a computer. And, and a bunch of times Tracy's like, what are you watching? Because I, I, laugh, <laughs> I laugh at this more than I laugh at a lot of comedies. I mean, the, to kind of move on to another character, the scene, John C. Riley is the cop. The opening scene of him talking to Marcy where uh, there's been a disturbance <laughs> and this woman is screaming at him because he's like, look, I have to report a disturbance. And this woman is desperate to act as though she's not suspicious. And with every word, she's act, she's revealing how suspicious she is. That scene is hilariously funny. I mean, it's brilliant. Where she's like, I don't know about no crash. And he's like, <laughs> and she's like, I, that, you know, what? And she's trying to kick him out of the house. And he's like, she's like, I am calm. And he's like, you're not calm. You're screaming at me. I, that is, <laughs> is there I, anyone else in the apartment? You in here? Yeah, you and yeah, yes, that is true. You and I are here. Is there anyone else? And then when he hears the, the bump in the bedroom, and she immediately he, he handcuffs her to the to the couch, and I love that she drags the couch. <laughs> she into drags the, the couch down the hall. He's like, "What? Is, what is this, Marcy?" She's like, "That ain't mine." Yeah, <laughs> finds the dead body. Whoa, what's this? That ain't mine. Like, it makes me wonder what would a full-on comedy by PTA seem like because he's really funny, and when he wants when when he gets into funny moments, like he's hilarious. I mean, it would be. I mean, the closest we've probably gotten is Punch Drug Glove, but they, mm-hmm. that's not really a comedy. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it, actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, I, I actually, I remember seeing, this was one of the first DVDs that I ever got because I remember after seeing it in the theater, I, I ended up like getting a VHS copy or I taped it onto a VHS tape and it was in full screen. And I remember the moment when John C. Riley uh, goes to Claudia's apartment um, and they're talking because of the way it's framed, they're at polar opposite ends of the screen and i remember the full screen pans out and it becomes widescreen for that scene because they're both so far away from each other it has to and that was kind of i mean i was i was like a teenager but i was like that was kind of like the first time when i was like you know what i get the difference between full screen and and widescreen now i kind of see why that's important um so within a couple of years of that is when i started getting dvds and and uh was definitely one of the first ones that i got on dvd um and I also had uh, an oh yeah yeah and it could because it made me think between seeing Boogie Nights uh, in ninety I think I saw it in ninety eight and then this in ninety nine like these two made me I was like okay yeah P T Anderson I am definitely dedicated to this guy I'm gonna see you know every movie that he does and then the next one he did was Punch Drunk Love with Adam Sandler and I was like uh okay I, I that was a disappointment I'm gonna skip his next movie no matter what it is and I think it was um um there will be blood and I still haven't mm-hmm. seen that. <laughs> Oh, man, I do re- not to get off track. I do remember seeing Punch Drug Love in the theater, and uh, I, I think about a third of the theater walked out in the first half yeah. hour. And I'm like, these were all the people expecting Billy Madison, yeah. and then they realized they weren't going to get that. They were like, the hell with this movie. But that, that's for maybe another episode of the show. But so, what do we what do we think about uh, the relationship between um, uh, John C. Riley playing the cop and Melora Walters, who is the this sort of very very bruised young woman? I love that he shows up and he it takes an instant like to her, and she she really doesn't want him in in the in, in her apartment because she's playing the stereo, she's playing Amy Mann, who of course is the soundtrack to this movie. We can get to that later on, but she's playing the stereo at like ear bleeding levels, and he shows up for the disturbance. And I love how he insinuates himself into her life where he's begging for a cup of coffee and she won't take the hint, and he's like, ah, oh, I just I love a fresh cup. I hate to go outside, so. 
raining cats and dogs out there. And she's, she just is resisting the whole time. And then finally she's like, would you like a cup of coffee? And he's like, oh, I would love some. And then she's just like, oh, my God, because she's got drugs over the house. What do we think of, like, that relationship? I think it's it kind of goes to his inherent goodness and sweetness, but also why he's probably not a good cop and why he isn't looked, why he isn't really respected. And he, he acknowledges that, the fact that he loses his gun later on in the movie. Like, he's just, as soon as he sees her, he takes a liking to her and misses all the obvious hints. It's like, yeah, she's taking forever to answer the door because she's hiding her cocaine. She's sprinting around this apartment hiding all the signs and not doing a good job of it. She's like, she looks coked out of her mind in this. He asks her if she's done drugs and she says no. It's like, you believe her? (laughs) Um, But I think ultimately, he wants to be a hero. He just wants to be a good guy in somebody's life. That's why in the beginning, like he has this monologue at the beginning and at the end when he's alone in his car. (laughs) And you kind of, it's kind of like the thing where you expect, like, he's like, he's probably been watching cops or like TV shows or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I'm used to like these people talking about, well, you know, this is a city, this is a tale of the city, you know, I'm a cop and everything kind of like going through what it means, but he's just talking to himself, but he's, he's just, this is the life he wants. To, he he pictures her. He just wants to be a hero. He wants to be a good guy. And he sees this girl who's got these problems, and he wants to protect her. And he misses out on how really screwed up and damaged she is because he want, he's lonely, and he wants to he wants somebody to love him and to, and to look up to him that way. So you it is endearing. You mentioned yeah. widescreen, and this movie kind of has a widescreen joke because as you talk about, it, he's got that monologue in the beginning, and you think he's talking to like his partner. Or something, mm-hmm. and then the film cuts from a close-up to a, to a long shot, and we see he's talking to nobody. He's just there in his car by himself, and it's like that joke only works on widescreen because you could see the full panel of like, oh, he's just not talking to anybody. But it's it's interesting that PTA hung the movie so heavily on the relationship because they go out on a date together, and uh, that's where they literally quote Amy Man lyrics at one point where she says, mm-hmm. uh, "Would you agree to never see me again?" And the the whole the final scene of the movie is Melora Walters' face. She pl- she plays Jessie in Boogie Nights. She has a tiny part in this movie, but here she's kind of front and center, and she hasn't really done a whole lot of me big stuff since then. And I it's it's a shame because I think she's terrific in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it, she's got to be the center of the film because of the way it was written. Um, so you know, I might as well talk about it now since. There's so much of Amy Mann's music in this particular thread. Uh, the idea that uh, Amy Mann and uh, PTA are, uh, you know, besties, and she's writing uh, music, and he's going to write a film, and he wants, you know, he sort of decides, I'm just going to rip off your songs. I'm going to write this film based on your lyrics. And as he's writing the film uh, or making the film, She's, you know, Amy Mann is, you know, changing songs, writing more songs. So it, it's really the that soundtrack is a collaborative thing where the film is about the songs and the songs, some of the songs at least, are about the film. And so we do find not just the songs, but, you know, lyrics turned into dialogue and, uh, you know, lyrics turned into themes, you know, whatever, the the underpinnings of characters. And really the the, the songs that when we do hear them, are very much about uh, Melora's character, Claudia. So, you know, that's the, you know, that Amy Mann is playing you know, super loud when uh, when Jim meets her, but when there's the wise up moment, uh, it starts in uh, Claudia's apartment. 
she she thinks she's stupid. She says, "I'm so stupid." Uh, she snorts another line of coke. The you know the music has started to, to build, and she's the first one to start singing. And it's it's sort of a a trick. It makes sense because she's in her apartment and she listens to this music. But then you know we'll talk about that later. But the trick is that everybody's going to sing the song, uh, and at the end. Uh, Save Me is a song about her, about her being saved or allowing herself to be saved. And she's the one that breaks the fourth wall at at that moment, uh, at the very end. So uh, a lot of these songs, and of course, the the lyric that is in their date is from one of the, you know, the dialogues from one of the songs. So the songs are mostly about her. And so you've got to imagine that if the Magnolia is a flower, it's the street, but it's also if it's the flower on the poster, she's the center of that flower. And the petals are sort of expanding away from her uh, and sort of chaos theory expanding from, you know, from from themselves later. So, uh, so yeah, everything's hung up on her because she's... She is, if there's a main character, it's her. And if there's a conscience to this film, it's uh, Officer Jim. Yeah, his, uh, his purity and his dialogue, and of course, he's very lonely and foolish and um, borderline incompetent and um, uh, you know, needy, really. So there are reasons to say that this character is pathetic. And yet, he's the one that makes the point that, uh, of the film. The point is, you know, the question of what can we forgive that he asks at the end is is germane to the thematics of the film, because this is a film about sinners. Uh, you know, again, the the plague of Egypt, sinners who are looking for redemption, who have regrets, who want to be forgiven, who uh, want a, a second chance who are perhaps at the very end of their rope and hoping to, you know, to go out on a, a you know, a better note than the, the, the notes they played while they lived. So the, uh, his monologue at the end is, is very much, you know, at the center of what this film is about. Um, and, uh, and we, as an audience, can we forgive some of the trespasses uh, some of the things that these characters have been accused of. Can the characters within the story forgive mostly their parents? I think it's a, very much about uh, you know bad parents. Um, everybody's got a bad parent in there. Um, you know, well, can you forgive that? And uh, if if there's a uh, you know a personal connection that I have to this film is is like uh, like many I you know daddy issues and all of that stuff kind of sort of. Uh, comes and gets you whatever your relationship, your difficult relationship to a parent. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people don't have any difficult relationships with their parents, but many do with either one or both. And I think that's, that's you know, that's where the film comes and gets you, uh, you know, like punches you in the gut. And Jim, Jim is my... the one that, oh, oh and Jim, Jim is the one that's asking you to forgive them, you know? I'm assuming my relationship with my son is going to end up paralleling Stanley and his father. Like, <laughs> oh no! The game show, where where uh, he like he, when his line when like his his son is going out on the show and the like the the quiz show is about to begin. And he's like, "Let's make some fucking money here, people." I was like, "Oh my god, I hate this character. He might be the worst character in the whole movie." I... Um, but before before j- just one last thing about um about Jim 
and and Claudia and their characters. I, I think my favorite moment between them might be when he when she first opens the door and he's sort of like stuck and he's been using his nightstick to bang on the door to get her to open it and he convinces her to go turn the music down and she walks or she runs over to the stereo. He's putting his nightstick back in his belt and he drops it and it falls down the stairs and he has to run down the stairs and, and grab it and pick it back up and then like put it back in his belt and get back to the door looking cool like he didn't just do that and you see how clumsy he is and how this woman has like disarmed him just with her her beauty and her looks but it's also foreshadowing that he's going to lose his gun like an hour later so <laughs> you mentioned the best thing he's ever done yeah, yeah. in my opinion uh, he's great. And you mentioned uh, the, the father and the, the Stanley, the young kid, the young genius, played by Jeremy Blackman, who's this, you know, he, he carries like 50 pounds of books. And we see that his dad is really, his dad is an aspiring actor and he's using him as a springboard as to kind of like get into auditions. And the dad is played by Michael Bowen, whose other big movie part is Jackie Brown. He played yeah, Michael Covered. Yeah, we were just covered. And I always wonder why didn't Michael Bowen kind of have a bigger career? And I have to think it's because he always plays assholes. <laughs> I think probably Hollywood looks at him and he's like, I hate that guy. And you're like, yeah, but he's just an actor. He's playing. I, yeah, because I think he was. I think he was in Kill Bill too, and he was like the male nurse who like rapes Uma Thurman. Yeah. Which is, oh my, yeah. He always, he plays, always plays these horrible he people. He always plays horrible people. But I mean, and he's horrible. I mean, he's great in this, but he's horrible in this. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. But you were Cisco. You were talking about the idea of like bad relationships with, with parents, and yeah, I think there is a lot of that in this movie. I mean, one of the other characters. Uh, played by um, Will, William H. Macy, who is uh, Donnie Smith, who, who was a, uh, a, a young, uh, he won a lot Basically, of money. He's, he's, he was Stanley 40 years Stanley ago. Stanley 40 years ago, right. and we see that it has turned him inside out because he's this you know, really insecure guy. And we realize, of course, he's got a bad relationship with his parents, who we never meet because they presumably spent all of his money. He won mm-hmm. a bunch of prize money, and they blew it all, and he's been sort of dining out on being in this sort of pathetic way being quiz kid Donnie Smith. And there's this great moment where William H. Macy crashes, <laughs> crashes his car. Sorry. <laughs> William H. Macy crashes his car into, into a window and some guy just runs up and goes, Hey, it's quiz kid Donnie Smith. <laughs> <laughs> He's super famous. <laughs> He's super famous. But we, and we, we want to know why, cause he, he's talking about that. He's like, I need corrective oral surgery. And you're like, and the scene he has with his boss, played by Alfred Molina, and they're like, what are you talking about? Your teeth are fine. And we don't know <laughs> why is he – and we realize that he's actually going to rob his employer to mm. get money to fix his teeth. And you're like, why is he doing this? And then there's the scene where he goes to the bar, uh, scored by uh, Supertramp's Hello Stranger, which is like <laughs> yes, the, which the is only amazing. other non-Amy Man song in this movie. Actually, yeah, there, on the soundtrack there are two Supertramp songs that both feature in that bar, and he's got like a Vitamin C song that plays whenever he's in his car. For some reason, William H. Macy is the one character that has his own little soundtrack. That's dreams not can't come true. You keep hearing that dreams can't come yeah. true. Yeah. 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 Uh, the music changes for his character and his character only. Everybody yeah. else seems to be in the, the Amy Man world. Yeah. yeah, that's a song by Gabrielle. Or I mean, oh, it's, Gabrielle. It's, it's, okay. oh, there yeah. we go. Yeah. But when he gets to the bar and we see, and it's all done with just the music, there's no dialogue. We see Brad, the bartender, who is this guy who is probably like 22, 23, and he's this major hunk. And we see he's got braces, and we yeah. realize in that moment that William H Macy is a probably closeted homosexual. He's in love with Brad, the bartender, and in this sort of pathetic manner, he thinks he's going to 
kind of like have an in with Brad the bartender. He wants to just love Brad the bartender, and he figures he loves the guy so much he's willing to get braces in his 50s just to be like Brad the bartender. And you can't help but feel how pathetic that is, but yet it's it's sweet in its own way because he just wants to be in love. He's so in love with Brad the bartender, who never gets a line of dialogue. He just... <laughs> You feel bad for, for poor William H. Macy because he's like, the guy just can't sort of catch a break. Yeah, two of my favorite parts. I, my favorite line of dialogue might be in his scene with um, with the uh, Solomon, Solomon, the Solomon brothers, when he's with Alfred Molina and the other one, the guy, the, the I brother, guess, yeah. the, the brother who's standing up behind him, when he tells him that he needs to get braces and they're like, what are you kidding? <laughs> um, but his brother's, like, his brother's like, you got struck by lightning that time you went to Lake Tahoe. I don't think braces is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I laughed at that line so much, <laughs> uh, but then like when when he like his key breaks in the lock and he has to try and climb up the side of the building and of course that's when the the plague of frogs comes down and he just looks up and a frog just hits him in the face <laughs> and he falls off the side of the building crashes his face on the concrete and like the crunch that you hear is like oh I felt that <laughs> and he breaks a bunch of his teeth so presumably like, he's yeah, going to yeah, need breaks that his, yeah. breaks his teeth like breaks his teeth. And the rest of it, like the yeah, for like the rest of his movie, with his mouth is just full of blood. You're like, oh, he's gonna need corrective oral, oral surgery. surgery. But, but watching it, watching it last night, I thought William H Macy with his mouth blown up like that looks like Ron Perlman. Like, that's, <laughs> like he's got this very sort of simian jawline thing like that. That just looks like his whole bottom face is bust up. And it's, yeah. by, by and if way. you're looking, if you're looking for more uh, divine intervention. This is a guy who got hit by lightning. That doesn't nice. happen to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's another. These things happen, or these. You know, he so he gets hit by lightning, and then later on in his life, he gets hit by a frog falling from the sky. Yeah. <laughs> by the way, I am sure that the electronics store that Solomon Solomon run that's the same one that Buck Swope opened in Boogie Nights. Yes. And he just eventually yes. got turned over. I am I I'm absolutely that. positive of that. This is all one big. PTA uh, universe. So, uh, so I mean, I love William H Macy in this movie. His wife, Felicity Huffman, is in this movie. She's mm-hmm. uh, one of the people that works at the game show. And uh, kind of dialing back around, we talk about Melora Walter's character. Her father is Jimmy Gator, the host of this long-running game show. What do kids know? And the reason they don't speak is because I mean, their first scene, she's just screaming at him, and we don't really know why. And then we find out later in a confession that uh, Philip Philip Baker Hall has with his wife, Dee Wallace, that uh, apparently and he, he sort of dodges it a little. He says that Claudia believes that I molested her. And it's pretty, he, he's, he's, doing, he, he doing, he's doing what he can to not say it out loud that he did do it, because he keeps saying, well, she believes that that's what happened. But it's clear that it's, that is what happened. And the, his wife, played by Dee Wallace, believes it too. And she's horrified because she loves this man. She thinks he's a great man, but yet he's done this horrendous thing. And he himself is dying of cancer, and he wants to visit his daughter for the last time before he dies. And so that's another idea of, like, is the Philip Baker Hall character a good man? I, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's true what we know about him and that he molested his daughter, he'd say, no, no, he's not. But yet, you know, he's played by somebody who is very avuncular and very kind of a... a a guy you like to see in movies, although he's really scummy in Boogie Nights as well. But, I mean, that's, again, it's that theme of can this guy atone for what he did? Well, I don't think he thinks he can't. Well, it could just be the cancer that he doesn't want to live with that because by the end of it, he's putting a gun to his head. And, 
again, going with the divine intervention that Cisco just mentioned, it's the frog falling through the skylight <laughs> that hits him in the hand and he misfires the gun. With a great POV shot of the frog yes. as it falls <laughs> the through the frog. skylight. The hero frog. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because as it's coming down, you just hear it croak one time before it's like, <laughs> and as it crashes through the window. <laughs> so, yeah, and actually that, that kind of got me to thinking about uh, going back to Claudia and like, the, the forgiveness thing, and, and Cisco, you mentioned this too, like, the, there is a lot that is left unsaid, we're only given this hint because it's like, you know, is, was she just, was she just, does she find herself ruined, or does she think of herself as, as damaged because of what happened to her, because she was the victim of this molestation, or is there did that just lead her down a path? I mean, we know from you know, just the beginning she's a drug addict. She sleeps around and with like guys she, she doesn't she know. She uses that... uh, blankets as curtains, right? right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, but but like, does she have her own problem, or was it like the original sin that just that she was she was molested? And is that is it right to blame her and to consider herself the same type of sinner as the others, or or is there just more about her that we don't know? Um, but certainly, I, I, she at least feels that she is damaged beyond beyond being able to be loved and forgiven. And of course, she's the perfect um, candidate for John C. Riley, who, as you said, mm-hmm. wants to be a hero. I mean, it's the perfect idea that he's going. I mean, save me, you know. I and mean, there it is. Mm-hmm. There's the song. I mean, he's going to. He wants to save this woman, and you know. When they go on the date and she talks about, you know, maybe we could get through all the bullshit and piss and shit. And, and he's like, <laughs> wow, you really use strong language. Like he's really, He doesn't know what he's in for. He, he has no idea the depths of the problem that he's taking on by uh, loving Claudia. But he wants to try. I mean, he wants to try. I mean, that's the thing. He's willing to give it a shot. And that, 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 that does make him one of the, you know, he is a fool, but he is one of the nicer ones in the movie because he does seem genuine. Um I did want to ask you guys both about something about getting away from the characters a little bit. Of like for a three-hour movie, I am kind of amazed at how interestingly paced this is. This is not paced like you would typically pace three-hour movie, where you would maybe have like a big denouement, like around the hour mark, and then another one. That there are two, I would say, bravura moments in this movie. One is the frogs, the rain of frogs, and then the other th- scene is we talked about where all the characters sing a line or two from Amy Mann's song Wise Up and it goes from character to character those two scenes are like 10 minutes apart in in like the 2 hour and 30 minute mark which is a very strange yep. way of pacing it and yet to me it all it works really well Wise Up is the it marks the uh, beginning of the third act yeah. So so it's like two long acts of just developing but, but look at even the music in those pieces without you know without the Amy man, just the score and how scenes that are about very mundane things, a man dying in a bed, a woman waiting at the, uh, you know, at the pharmacy, how it's, the music is actually suspenseful. They're, they're playing suspe- a suspenseful beat through most of the second act. And so it's like a ticking clock on what is it, you know, slice of life, but everybody's got their own, their own thing going on. And, you know, will Phil get uh, T.J. Mackey to come to the, you know, on the phone? 
Uh, will uh, will T.J. Mackey's secrets be exposed by the journalist? Will so you you know in the game show kind of in like the game show seem to be like the running clock that's kind of like counting down and yeah, like can can Stanley hold his bladder? It's like how long until he pees himself? Yeah, this is like a half hour show that takes about an hour of the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but because because we're always in the same moment, just elsewhere. You know, you've got to double up on on the minutes. But uh, yeah, so, so this whole section like the second part of it is kept alive mostly by music and by camera movement and it's shot like a suspense thriller even though there's no there are no thriller elements especially with the the you know the the uh, crime element removed from the film so you've got you know you got that ticking clock on personal lives on people's breakdowns uh, Earl's death, you know, it, it's all sort of, and that's what keeps the the thing moving through what are essentially, you know, very still <laughs> portraits. You know, it's, it's people waiting. You know how the the editing in some places will just catch up with every character just through music or through, uh, you know, Earl's speech or whatever, whatever it takes. And there's just like people sitting there, people in bed, people con- contemplating their lives. Uh, and this is mirrored actually in the Save Me video that Amy Mann did, where she's obviously on the set all through this process because she's sort of a ghost in everybody's lives as they're contemplating. It's very much in the same style as the film. So you're looking at people sitting and thinking uh, and then cutting to the next, cutting to the next. And the camera movement, the editing, and the music are what creates a, a, a suspenseful pace uh, that really doesn't make you feel like this is a three-hour-long movie. Yeah, I was I was amazed on the rewatch how many things I remembered about this movie were just in what we would call the third act, uh, and how certain characters. I mean, every character does have like an arc, a beginning, middle, and end, but some of them are like really truncated, like Stanley. And um, uh, Julianne Moore's character, we hardly see them by the end because Stanley, the game show is over. His story is kind of is com- uh, like other than him kind of giving his commentary on the frogs. That's all we really get from him in the, in the third act. And then Julianne Moore, by the time Wise Up happens, she's already like popped Xana, the, all her pills and the, and the booze and she's putting herself into a coma. But like with the third act, act like after that. It's it's after Wise Up. That's when we get the date between John C. Riley and Claudia. That's after that song is when Tom Cruise goes to see uh, um, Jason Robards on his deathbed. After that is when um, the robbery, when uh, um, uh, Chris Kid Donnie Smith goes to to rob Solomon Solomon. Like all of this stuff that I was remembering, it all happens towards the end, like in the third act. Um, but yeah, just the the pacing, the way it manages to stretch out that middle. I mean, between the between an extended prologue. And a long kind of introduction to all of these characters. Um, it is it is kind of remarkable how he can linger on certain things without it feeling like it's dragging its feet or, or wasting a lot of time. Um, and it, it's it is one of those remarkable things where, yeah, I, I did want to spend time with all of these characters. And and now like even knowing like having like seems like I do want to find out more about that that tenth storyline with uh with the worm with the kid's uh, father played by orlando jones who i think is credited but yeah, yeah. we never actually see his face um and we like there's the whatever there's a, like a, a scene in the diner that was shot or whatever where the, like the gun comes into play because how did the gun end up landing there on on the in the parking lot in front of john c Riley again i just i want to know more about that but of all the storylines, the the one with Stanley to me feels the most that suffers the most from I think the idea of just this movie can't be four hours because 
mm-hmm. after he has the breakdown on the game show where he pees himself and and he basically doesn't get a resolution other than he walks into his dad's room when his dad is sleeping and he says something like you need to be nicer to me dad and you're like that i mean that's that's the most stanley has ever talked back to his father so you feel like at least on some level that's him you know charting a new course for himself but it's such a minor scene that to me it's like that that one storyline feels a little like okay he pta just ran out of time uh because well, he had so much other things to get to speaking as uh the, 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 you know the the child of a uh, an overbearing father uh, I, I i see a lot of myself in that storyline and just that little just that little defiance is a huge victory mm. for a kid mm. huge and i i like the father's reaction as well, because he doesn't back down. You know, just go to bed, and then Stanley repeats it, and then he says, go to bed. But there's a recognition there that he can't continue to treat Stanley the same way. That, you know, Stanley's become a man sort of thing. Uh, or, uh, you know, uh, suddenly there's a difference between Stanley before and Stanley now, and the parental-child uh, dynamic has changed. And he rec- you see the, that recognition in the acting, even though the dialogue doesn't, you know, doesn't give any quarter. So I love that moment for, for both of the characters. Hmm. Yeah, I could say, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm skeptical that the father is going to treat him any differently. And so maybe I feel like Stanley's just Stanley's life is not going to be any better. I mean, virtually all the characters in this movie, I think, are going to come out better Oh, well, I mean, Earl dies, of course, but I mean, I, aside from him, everybody else is is kind of getting a happy ending, and that that gets to something about this movie in general that I think the reason this movie was not regarded uh, as warmly by critics uh, and by audiences as it was Boogie Nights is because I think this movie is very heartfelt. You know, it's kind of PTA's emotion on his sleeve, and it, Boogie Nights is a lot easier to like because it's kind of badass and it's about porn and it's got, you know, there's a lot more kind of gun violence and like a, it's that, that movie's a lot easier to kind of think is cool. But this movie is, it sort of is very, you know, it's just, it, it, it is what it is. It kind of, in fact, on the documentary, which we do need to, to talk about uh, before we wrap up is the amazing documentary about this movie is uh, at the time of making this movie, PTA was dating uh, Fiona Apple. And we see a scene of them right after the premiere or not too long after. And I guess the early word had started leaking that the movie was not going to be as well received as Boogie Nights. And Fiona Apple, they had this little scene where Fiona Apple plays the film Magnolia. She is the movie trying to please audiences. And she kind of does like this shuck and jive kind of thing of like, like me, like me. And PTA plays the audience. And he's yelling at the movie, and he's like, you're too long, you're too this, who cares about the final scene with a girl's face? And she just keeps dancing, trying to be loved. And I think that's what this movie is. This movie is so genuine and non-sarcastic uh, and non, uh, you know, it's just, it's sweet. It's good-natured and sweet, despite all the F-lang, all the horrible language and all the things that go on. It's a very warm movie, and I don't think people were necessarily expecting that from the guy that made Boogie Nights. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, no, it's, it's a very strange moment for a making of a documentary as well. Uh, you know, I, yeah, that that thing is uh, that thing's pretty uh, entertaining, regardless. You know how it, it paints P.T. Anderson as both a uh, control freak and monster, and yet 
someone who's very loosey goosey on set. <laughs> uh, it's very, uh, it's a very strange portrait of the man. And then there's that, like, yeah, that you know, coming back from the premiere and and play acting that thing. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I guess the, the the film itself is is very sincere. And if it is about uh, forgiveness, that's not you know, this is yeah. What is this film about? Is the thing. It, we went on to say, oh, it's like there's nine stories. or no, what, But Anderson himself said it was just one story, and he hates that people, you know, at, at least during the process, he hated when people said it was either too long or, or that it was a number of stories, nine stories. How many stories are there? No, they're just one. Because the one story, regardless of all the plot threads and the characters, the one story is about, and it's not about what, you know, any kind of plot. The, it, the story is about forgiveness or the question of forgiveness. And so if it's that, then uh, it, it must be a very sincere film where you are asked to forgive the characters, where the characters must forgive one another, where uh, maybe they won't, maybe they don't. Uh, but, you know, it's based on that or, or forgive themselves in the case of Claudia. So you, it's very raw. It's very emotional. And if you just let yourself get into it on that basis. And I know a lot of people who, you know, um, critique or, you know, decide if they like a film based on whether or not they like the characters. And they'll just go, that film was terrible because I, I hated every character in it. That's, you know, that's your lack of empathy, fictional, <laughs> fictional uh, audience member in my example. Um, because if, if you do relate in any way to any of the characters, then you should, you know, you should feel as emotional as as the film really is. And, I, you know, there are many points in the film where I, I lose it. And it's, the tra- it's mostly the transcendent uh, way that music is used. I mean, when, you know, when everybody, the first time, I mean, it's, it's, the effect has been lessened perhaps over time. But first time I saw it, when they start, you know, everybody sings the song and it's, it's an absurd moment. It's an art moment uh, where even Earl, who is even a dying guy, yeah, 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 and you know, and Julianne Moore is in is in a you know drug coma, and still her mouth is moving. She's singing. So th- this it's absurd, of, of course. But to me, it was like, wh- what is this? What what is this film doing? And it's like suddenly there's like these, and it's the same thing with the at the ending where the uh, you know where Claudia looks at the camera, mm-hmm. where she's going to be okay, or. We can hope she will be. Uh, of course, her history sort of tells us that she probably won't be. But that moment of hope for her, where, it, you know, there's just a contact with the audience that's not normal. And the film does this in many ways. This is just like, these are just like the most extreme ways where it, it, it knows it's a film. It knows it's a film. And it, will, it, it treats its subject matter as a film, and yet the characters are alive, the emotions are real, you know? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's probably not for everyone is, is the mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, you know, it's perhaps too demanding um, emotionally or uh, just that as far as how you understand narrative. Uh, some people will find it, uh, you know, find, find themselves very disconnected from it. I, I mean, I love all of the performances in this movie. It's it's so well done. And and I, at the beginning of the episode, I kind of said like there aren't as many likable characters. But I think what the what the film does is even 
even though the characters who have done horrible things, it makes you, if not if not sympathize with them, then you do empathize with them, and and it makes you kind of turn to root for them and hope for them, and and again that plays into the idea of forgiveness. Can you forgive these characters that you know wouldn't be the heroes of any other movie, but in the, in this story, in these lives, this is what they have. Can we accept that? Can we can we take them at their faults and and find find love? And I, I you know I, I like I like Donnie's last line in the movie when he's like, "I have love to give. I just don't know where to put it." Um, and and yeah, it, it's amazing. Like I I think this is technically a superior movie to Boogie Nights. Me personally, I like the narrative of Boogie Nights more. Um, I, I just I, I find that one a little bit more entertaining. Um, and I, you know, I'd say the same thing that The Empire Strikes Back is technically better than Star Wars. But I understand people who say they like Star Wars better, and I might even agree with that. Too. I have my hand up right now. So that's what I'm thinking, and, and it's kind of like the same thing. I think this is a <laughs> technically better movie than um, than Boogie Nights. I tend to prefer Boogie Nights more, but that's you know a subjective thing. But that's not a knock against this one because I do think this is it's amazing. Yeah. It does yeah. feature uh, that that final shot of Laura Walters looking right into the camera is one of my favorite final shots in all of movies. I just think it's such a perfect way to end. To, as you better say, than the final shot of Boogie Nights, though. That's, that's <laughs> they're both really good. Uh, he knows how to end his movies, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, a different animal, let's say. But <laughs> so I have to get this in. Speaking of, of animals, when you talk about the, the, the frogs falling, I, I can't help but think, like, there's probably a guy in Hollywood, right? And he has been making practical effects his whole life, and he sees his career starting to wind down as computers come in. And then he's really good at making prosthetics, and then he gets a call. Hey, man, can you make us fake frogs? Yeah, I can do that. How many do you need? Um, 6,000. You know, it's like he gets to retire off of Magnolia because he got to make more f- fake frogs than any other movie in all of history. Yeah, I think some of them were CG, though. But yeah. and, but the ones I really love, the, the frogs that I really love, are the ones that are just probably cardboard cutouts. Yeah. You know, it's just like they're falling in slow motion uh, around the library as Stanley yeah, looks yeah, out yeah. the window. You know, just they go slow-mo. It's like, oh, that's such a, like a beautiful image. Now, this movie has, I mean, for me, a lot of my um, fandom for film is sometimes, you know, related to the, the difficulty level. <laughs> is it an achievement? You know, I love the Lord of the, the, the Rings films because they're such a great achievement. How, how, you know, how many parts, moving parts there are to a film. And uh, Magnolia is just like that. I mean, it's on a script level, it's very complex. On, and then having to realize that and make the whole thing work in editing and the camera moves, and some of them are very difficult, and then having to introduce elements that not everybody will understand or want or like, uh, and then having you know the frogs fall down and the, the, the ambulance crashing, and then there's a lot of you know let's let's film an entire uh, let's design and film an entire game show. And so they had to do it, like you know, on videos, just so you could see on TV as well. And then, and then the, the, the difficulty of the acting of these parts—it's um, such a great juggling act in tone and in in form and in content. Um, and for me, part of it, you know, like a difficult film to make. I think it's probably just one one of the reasons I like Blade Runner as well. The, the difficulty of making this thing speaks to me as a fan. The frog, the 
fun, I, I completely forgot about this, but the the frogs actually made me jump in the theater when it when it started, because the way it plays out, John C. Riley he's driving home from from the date that didn't go well. He sees William H Macy climbing up the seven million. He starts to turn. He starts to make a U turn in the middle of Magnolia Boulevard, and you just hear something crash up against his windshield. And this is a cop who was shot at earlier in the movie. Mm. So like, there's the suspense, and it just sounds like bam, bam up against the car and he like spins out and stops and it pulls out and there's this wide shot of him like almost hyperventilating as he's looking around like where did that come from what was it and you just kind of like your brain has to like reorient it's like what is that on the hood of his car and i was just like just from kind of jumping i was like is there a frog on the windshield and like it cuts to inside and you just see it slowly sliding down that like sliding down the windshield and then he looks up and just these frogs just start coming down and i was like whoa and then talking about the difference between like the practical and the and the cgi like when it cuts to the next day when they're scraping the frogs off of bill macy's car and the windshield and he's like he's trying to drive away and it almost like they can't get any traction like the cars are like fishtailing because of the frogs the, oh, uh, the scene of the scene of claudia while she is doing coke while yeah. the frogs begin to fall, and we see the silhouettes of them falling behind the curtain is a masterpiece of comic timing. Because yeah, she, she hears something, turns, no frogs. Goes back yeah. to the coke. We see them fall again. She turns again, nothing. And it, he, dra- he drags out to just the perfect length. Because you're like, you, she, she's so just she missing the frogs by half a second. Yeah, yeah she sees them reflected in the TV. Yeah, oh, it's, fan- it's fantastic. So um, you mentioned, again, Cisco, we have to sort of wrap up here because we are now heading for this. Other than a commentary, this will be the longest episode of the Film of Order podcast, which is sort of appropriate considering the movie we're talking about. But uh, uh, there's a scene in the documentary where P.T. Anderson is setting up a shot. I guess it's like the first shot of the movie. And he says, hey, everybody. Uh, I think we should try and make a good movie, and let's be proud of that. Let's 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 not think that that's a bad thing. And people are gonna go, yay! And they kind of clap. And you realize it's like, yeah, make. I'm amazed any movie gets made, really, because it just seems like such a Herculean task. Even the even the shortest, crappiest movie just seems. My dinner with Andre looks ambitious. Let alone a three-hour thing with all these characters and sort of amazing. And the documentary that comes on the DVD and is available on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing on YouTube. It's called That Moment. It is one of the best movie documentaries I've ever seen because it's a real documentary about making the movie. It's not one of those HBO first looks, you know, where everybody is sitting in director's chairs and they're just kind of bullshitting. Oh, James Woods was great to work with. You know, no, I mean, it's, it's like it's real moments. And there are there are two scenes in, in the in the documentary that I really I've never forgotten, uh, even though I haven't seen the documentary in a while. One is they talk about how tired the crew is. And there's this, this crew member talking about how they released two of the other crew members to go home early on a Friday night. They were like, all right, you know what, you're done. Go home Friday night. And they said one of the crew members reports back on Monday. And the crew member went home Friday night and was like, oh, man, this is great. I don't have to be at work on the weekend. I'm going to just sleep in and have a really good weekend. So she goes to sleep and she wakes up. She goes to sleep at like midnight. And she wakes up at 8 in the morning. And she looks at her clock at 8 in the morning, and she's like sort of almost mad at herself that she only slept 8 hours because she was so tired. She thought she would sleep more. And then she realized it was Sunday. She had slept an entire day and never woke up and woke up Sunday. That's how tired she slept for like 36 hours straight, which I absolutely love. 
And then the other moment is we see uh, scenes of Jameson Robards talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Robards is regaling him with stories about working with Sam Peckinpah. And he talked about this movie he did called uh, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, where he says that they literally blew up a scorpion for a scene. And as or a lizard. I think it's a, a lizard. A lizard, a lizard. And as, yeah. he, as he's describing the scene to Philip Seymour Hoffman, Hoffman, who of course comes from a different generation, is like, what movie was this? And I just, I think that really gets across the idea of how differently movies were made in the 2000s than they were in the 70s. And I think about, when I hear that story, I think about Boogie Nights, because in that movie, of course, Nina Hartley is in that movie. She's a real porn star. And Mm -hmm. apparently she wanted to literally have sex with her co-star on screen for her scenes. And one of the producers had to like basically take her aside and say, "We don't do that on movies. You, you cannot. We're not going to literally having you having intercourse." And I think in the seventies that might have been that might have might have flown. So that doc, if, even if you don't watch Magnolia, watch that documentary because it is so entertaining. I love it. It's talking to talking to Bill Macy, and he's like, yeah. "What did you think when you first saw the script?" He's like, "Yeah." I liked it. I really liked it. I thought it was a little long. And Tanner's like, you motherfucker, asshole. Just like rips into him or whatever. He's like, yeah. It's like, so what did you think? He's like, well, I showed the script to Julianne Moore and I asked her what she thought. She's like, well, it's a little long. And she's like, you mother goddamn. He's like, keep freaking out because that was the first reaction to everybody who, all the actors who read the script. Like, they all said, like, it's long. Yeah. They all said it was astonishing. Oh, it's really, it's, it's great. It's astonishing. It's Maybe it's a little long. <laughs> Every time. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the way they, I mean, there's a lot of gentle ribbing, I guess, a lot of joking around or, you know, there's, there's one scene where, um, PT Anderson is sort of mocking, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance. Right, so right. you'll go and you'll do this. And, you know, so you, you can tell these people are friends. And I mean, originally Magnolia, what, what, well, not Magnolia necessarily, but the next film after Boogie Nights was supposed to be a little, just a little movie. Yeah. Let's just keep let's keep, keep some momentum going. We're on, you know, we just came off a hit. Let's just get all the, the same kind of the same cast. Let's do a, do a little, a tiny little movie, you know. Joss Whedon's uh, uh, Much Ado About Nothing. You know, just get in my house three days and shoot something. And then it turned into this monster that took eight <laughs> months to write and, and six months of principal photography. And I mean, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, scene in the, uh, the scene in the hotel room where PTA talks about that he partly designed the poster as well. Mm-hmm. And that's when Millie Mitch Macy starts making fun of him. And he's like, he worked on the poster. He goes, he ground the lenses. He made the lenses for this, <laughs> for the cameras for this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he shot, you know, he, uh, he edited the trailer. He edited the music video. Um, all of that. Cause, cause they had to be shot, you know, as part of the film, there's a lot of, uh, this is, you know, even the trailer for this is not just scenes from the movie. Right. There's features some- original content. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I love that. I mean, I don't want the trailer to tell me what the film is. Uh, you know, as you know, I don't want to have the story told just in in summary form, which some trailers do. Um, you know, the worst of them. But you know, but so when you shoot something different, uh, it, you know, it adds a lot to that. So of course, he so he was implic- You know, he was involved with the marketing of the film. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, or at least claim to. You know, so uh, making fun of him for being a one-man show is, uh, yeah, it goes with the, you know, par for the course. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Amazing film. It's it's highly it's a great, a great one of the great documentaries I've ever seen. It just and worthy of the movie. I mean, it was and it, all props to PTA for allowing that to get out because, as you said, it doesn't always present him in the greatest light. Although when he screens Network for everybody, that looked like fun. You know, like just <laughs> sitting with all your pals and getting to watch these great movies on the lot. Like that looked really that looked really cool. But yeah, it's 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 a for for a. a what of a messy movie this is and kind of ambitious. I like that the documentary kind of gets in a way of reflecting that. I really thought that was uh, that was good. Cause like I, said, I would not want to see some bland puff piece, you know, with all the actors. It's, it's great to see these actors interacting with each other off screen and having a good time is really highly entertaining. And I mean, they were all friends. They'd all worked with each other before they'd done like David Mamet stuff. Um, I think, I think Magnolia was like Felicity Huffman's beta test for sports night. Um, because I think we first see mm. her as like a long walk and talk, sh- like tracking shot, mm. right before the game show starts. Yeah. Um, and uh, Clark Gregg, our our beloved Agent Coulson, right, right. he's like one of like the director or the one of the camera operators on the yep. on the set of the game show. So Louis Guzman, Louis Guzman plays himself. I love yep. that. He, play, he a guy berating the kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I love that he plays himself as kind of a jerk. I think that was that's a great little touch. Uh, even, even the bit parts are, you know, major actors, at least now. <laughs> so, so what do we think? Did the kids lose that game? Or like the next day, are they going to say the kids are out? They didn't. They didn't break the record. I think the show's canceled. Yeah, because Jimmy's uh, he's done. Yeah, <laughs> he's over with. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, uh, there are a couple. Before we wrap up, there are a couple other things I just wanted to mention. Uh, in terms, I mentioned uh, James. Uh, oh shoot, uh, uh, George C. Scott turned down the movie. Mm-hmm. Burt Reynolds turned this movie down. Uh, because as we know, Burt Reynolds is an idiot. Uh, he doesn't recognize when he's in good things. Uh, sorry, sorry, Chris. I know you're listening, but uh, he apparently doesn't have a good sense of his own uh, of uh, what works for him. I'm guessing he would have played Earl Partridge. I'm trying to think what other role Burt Reynolds would have played in this movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, he turned it down. And one of the nurses that uh, we see looming over William H Macy's character is Veronica Hart, the real life porn star. Veronica Hart, who I assume became friends with PTA on the set of Boogie Nights, so we see her there too. Um, except it's 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 a great movie. It's it's a movie I loved as soon as I saw it, and I've loved it ever since. And I am happy I got a chance, a reason to rewatch it because it, it really is rewarding. And again, it's three hours. It's not. It's it's something you do have to pay attention to, but uh, you know that's it's the way it should be. You know, it's a movie that rewards multiple viewings and really giving it your your all. And it's a, it's a really tremendous tremendous accomplishment. And I I feel bad that it didn't make a lot of money. And then it's sort of like in some weird way, almost like the forgotten, maybe not forgotten, but it's. It's not the movie people talk about when they talk about his, his career. They talk about The Master, There Will Be Blood. Uh, maybe because this movie, Oscar-wise, you mentioned, Ryan, that Tom Cruise got an Oscar nomination. But I think that was pretty much it. This movie didn't really score that well with critics. Uh, I think Save Me was nominated for yeah, yeah. It, just, it, it didn't. It just didn't resonate with me, which is a shame because I think it's as good as Boogie Nights or any of his other work. Better. <laughs> Obviously, I'd say that. It's, you know, because I, I, I'm on record as saying that uh, – you know, I, I love Magnolia to bits, and so I'm very loyal to Paul Thomas Anderson uh, because of it. But I don't – I respect all his other films, but don't quite love any of them except for Magnolia. All right. Well, 
I like seeing Henry Gibson play an old gay man at the corner of a bar more than an <laughs> Illinois Nazi. <laughs> and and given, given how much I love Blues Brothers, that's saying something. He's, he's playing, his character's name is Thurston Howell for some reason. <laughs> he is the character from Gilligan's Island. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's Magnolia. It's a really tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. If you haven't seen it, go check it out. So, well, guys, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I don't think we need to plug our stuff. We're all on the same network. We're on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can find all of our shows there. Ryan does shows. I do shows, of course. Uh, Cisco does shows, uh, like I said. And, and go 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 check Magnolia out. It's really an amazing movie. So, guys, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter, which is at Film and Water Pod, and back episodes of the show are on the network site, fireandwaterpodcast.com, where you can find It's Midnight and Oh Hot Moo and all the other great shows that we all do. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. And the book says we may be done with the past. The past ain't done with us. Open, ma'am. Yeah, I got a call. You're not allowed to just calm come down. in. Calm I down. Calm down. Okay, I got a call to this apartment. Report of a disturbance. There's no disturbance. Okay, I got a call of a disturbance. Your door was open, and I just want to see what's yeah, going on. Yeah, but there's no disturbance. Okay, well then you got nothing to worry about. You don't tell me. I know my rights. Just come right in. You can't okay. just. Uh-uh. All right, ma'am. You want to test me? All right. You want to tell me about the law book? We can do that. You push me far enough, I will take you to jail. Okay? Now calm yourself down. I am calm! No, you are not calm. You're screaming at me. You understand? Now I get a call of a disturbance and I'm going to check it out. That is what I'm going to do. Now are you alone in here? I ain't got to answer none of your questions. No, you don't. But I'm going to ask you one more time. Are you alone in here? What does it look like? There's no one else in here? You in here? That's true. But is there anyone else besides me and besides you in this house? No, I said that already. Mm -hmm. Are you lying to me? I live by myself. Okay, well, that might be true. But the question I'm asking you, ma'am, is there anyone else in this house right now? No. Okay. What is your name? Marcy. Okay, Marcy. I'm going to need you to take a seat here. I prefer to stand up. Okay, I'm not asking. I didn't even do nothing. Move, ma'am. Okay. So like I was saying, I'm here to check on a disturbance. Now some of your neighbors called said they heard screaming and a loud crash. I don't even know no loud crash. Okay, what, what was that? I didn't hear nothing. Sit back down on the couch. I ain't gotta do Sit a goddamn thing. What's this? What's do this not do this. Do not do this. Do not this slap me, ma'am. I don't need backup. What the fuck is this bullshit? It's bullshit, motherfucker. I want you to stay right there, Marcy. This bullshit, you know it. Stay right there, Marcy. This is bullshit, motherfucker. Don't go down my hallway. Don't go down my motherfucking hallway. Don't go in my goddamn bedroom. Come up now with your hands up.
want you to come out and show yourself to me now with your hands up. Mercy, do not drag that couch any further. Don't do this, man. There's nobody in my motherfucking closet. If I have to open this closet, you will get shot. Give up. 